Hey coach, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. Let's share the game. Awesome to welcome UAB head coach Andy Kennedy to the Basketball Podcast. Kennedy began his coaching career as an assistant for South Alabama during the 1994 season. Since then, he has also served as an assistant coach at UAB Cincinnati. Coach Kennedy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Chris. Honored to talk to you. I mean, you, you've been at a few different places. You had success everywhere you've gone, and now you got it rolling at UAB. Must be a lot of fun to be there right now. Well, this is my alma mater. You know, this is where I, I was a transfer myself way back in the days where you had to sit out. Can you remember that? Uh, <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I came here and I actually played for the founding father of UAB Athletics and Gene Barto. We, we play in Barto Arena, uh, named after him and certainly appropriately so. So I, I, I've been a part of this program when it was really, uh, you know, nationally relevant. So I know what it's like to, to be a part of that in a city that, that is known for being crazy about college football, and that's certainly justified. But there's a there's a, a, a underground basketball support here as well if we give them a product by which that, that, that earns their support and which they can be proud. We, we feel like we've made strides in that. Um, in that area in our first three seasons here and really look forward to bringing that momentum into our first year in the American Athletic Conference this season. Beyond it just being fun being back at your alma mater, are there any uh, unique challenges that uh, maybe we wouldn't be aware of? Well, it's always challenging, just the landscape of college basketball in general with um, uh, with, with with all the, the movement. You know, it's it's – whether it be the transfer portal or whether it be NIL or whether it be us changing leagues, it just to be, it's so fluid as it relates to roster continuity. For instance, this year we uh, we're coming off a, a pretty remarkable span, 56 wins over the last two years, 78 over the last three, which is the fifth most in college basketball over that three year period. But uh, a lot of those guys are gone. We only returned four guys that played on last year's 29 win team and, we brought in nine new guys, and it was an eclectic group from junior college to the portal to high school. So with that, when you bring in nine of your 13 scholarship players that are new to your program, there's certainly going to be a transition period, and we're experiencing that now. I'm curious your perspective on this. I've talked to some other coaches about this you know, transient nature of the game, and, and it, it, they've kind of argued that it's actually made them better coaches. Not that they weren't good coaches before, but they've had to really dive in and kind figure some things out that maybe in the other, if they just plug and play into a system, doesn't happen as much. Is that true for you too? Well, I think you certainly have to evolve. You know, we can all sit around and wring our hands and say, oh, the sky's falling, the sky's falling. Or you can choose to evolve and deal with the, the hand that you're dealt. And that's, it's been the way that we've approached this thing. Um, for us, when you have so many new guys, you try to simplify things. So I think it makes you really, really dive deep, as you said, and figure out what are going to be our core elements and try to build from that. Um, you know, a lot of times us as coaches, we, we overcomplicate things. Uh, and in basketball, much like, uh, much different than football, for instance, you know, as the head coach, you got to be the offensive coordinator, the defensive coordinator. You're in charge of uh, – game management, your player personnel, and you're doing all of that within about an eight-second span. So you've got, you've got to try to make sure that your guys are not confused. Uh, we're two weeks away from the start of college basketball. And, again, with so many new guys, when I look at our group and 
Uh, I've watched the tape. It seems we're a little confused at times, uh, and that's something we've really got to clean up before we get into live action. Of course you do, and you will, and uh, that's one of the challenges, too, is that you have more practice time than we had in years past. And then, of course, you um, ran a scrimmage recently, like a lot of teams. Talk to us a little bit about that process of having these extra practices throughout the summer and then obviously building into these scrimmages, which, again, most coaches say are wonderful experiences to be able to kind of figure out where you're at. Yeah, no question. You know, when, when October 15th rolled around about a week ago, I, I talked to our team about in the old days when I played, uh, I, this is the first time I would see our head coach, whether it be Jim Valvano, I started at North Carolina State, or Gene Bartow at UAB. Uh, you know, from when the season ended, and we played late into the season last year. We were in the NIT championship game, so we played late into March. But once that game ended and we got back to Birmingham, I wouldn't see Coach Bartow, but maybe a handful of times until October 15th. Uh, and then you would go, you know, six days on, one day off, many times, two a days. Your body was about to <laughs> break down after a couple of weeks. And you did that for about a month, and then you started the games. Well, this is so different, as you said. You know, Chris, we, we started out in early June with this group. You get eight weeks in June. Then you get about five weeks before official practice start for about 20 workouts into our 30 uh, allowed prior to the opening game. So uh, we needed desperately to play someone else, as you said. These secret scrimmages aren't quite as secret as they used to be. They used to, you know, slap you on the wrist if you even talked about them. And now you kind of see it everywhere. I don't know what you can and can't say. Of course, the way that the, that the NCAA is evolving, I'm not even sure what's what's a rule anymore. But that, th those things are very, very valuable because for the first time you're playing someone other than yourself, someone that doesn't know the plays and are trying to cheat the plays because both teams are running the same stuff. And so it's very educational. Everybody takes a different approach to that. I, I'm of the belief that, number one, you want to walk out of it unscathed. Number two, you want to get a lot of tape on all your guys so that you can learn from it um, so that hopefully you can grow from the experience. And I certainly think we did that. Great insights into in terms of that process. And I'm also curious, do you do, you do a debrief with your secret opponent after the game to be able to get a feel for what they thought? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times uh, we will we will share scouting reports, but because it, it's so transient, you know, that we had so many new guys that hadn't even been Division One. Uh, we 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 played a secret scrimmage against a coach that is in first year in a new job, so they had a lot of new guys. So a lot of times we will share scouting reports, but we didn't do that. But we do talk about, hey, this is what gave us problems. This is where I believe that uh, you can be good, and vice versa. So. Uh, very productive all the way around, and, and hopefully it'll allow us to continue to grow as we try to mature uh, in preparation for November 6th. That's fascinating to hear how you and others handle it. And uh, talking more specifically about your program, you shared your program mantra with me, which uh, which I love. And maybe let's start with the first thing, which is be relentless. Yeah, you know, we, we want our guys to be relentless in the pursuit of excellence both on and off the court. And you notice when you say the word relentless, that's not a word that you probably use every day in your vocabulary. Uh, it, it's pretty stern, pretty hard. It's like, hey, man, relentless is relentless. It's 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 not giving up. It's it's never dying. It's continuing to pers persevere forward. And we try to create that mindset because it is such a battle. You know, when we start this thing, as you said, you know, a long time ago, but in earnest at the end of September, uh, it, it's a long journey to try to ultimately get to where you want to be in March. I, I try to tell our guys, and again, I'm not big into coach speak, but I, I do 
focused on the things that I can control and trying to stay in the moment. You can't get too high. You can't get too low. You've got to continue to work on being ultimately best version of self uh, and just continue to stack good days. If you stack good days um, at the end, when you go to stand on your work, uh, you'll like your view. And we've been fortunate again in our three years here. Our view uh, after year one was 22 wins, decent view. But again, we couldn't quite see where we wanted to see. In year two, we we, we capture a Conference USA Championship and advance back to the NSA tournament, which is everyone's goal with 27 wins, which was a program most. And then last year, we came up short uh, of, of capturing back to back Conference USA Championships. There was a team uh, down in Boca Raton. I don't know if you've heard of them, FAU, that had a pretty remarkable run great year for for them and dusty and his staff did a tremendous job uh, so we came up a little short in the in the championship game but we were able to bounce back and win four games in the postseason for only the second time in the history of our program and advance to the nit championship game and win 29 games so every year man we're just trying to stack work and at the end hope we like our view i like that phrasing stack work and i also like the phrasing be the best version of yourself and uh We'll get back to the mantras, but uh, maybe talk about that as a goal, becoming the best version of yourself and best version for each individual player. Yeah, that is the goal. And, and you know, I, I think um, comparisons are foolish. You know, we all do it because we feel like we have to do it or we feel like it's just a, um, I, I guess it's just a routine way of viewing things, most especially in sports. You're always trying to compare um, but I think it's the, the biggest stealer of joy. I think you've got to run your own race and you've just got to stay in, in trying to focus on being best version of self. I try to explain to our team again, 13 players, nine of them knew we're learning about each other. And I don't need any of them to be other than what we brought them there to be. We just need them to be best version of that so that individually uh, we can they can reach their potential and and then we can put the group together collectively. It is it is a puzzle, and, and everybody there has a different set of skills. And, again, that's ultimately what we're trying to do, have those kids leave with a great college experience, having won many games with a degree in hand, walking out ready for the real world as best for himself. It strikes me when you talk about it that way that it also frees up players to be their individual self rather than conform to, like, you're going to fit them into this – square peg round hole type of thing right you're going to let them be themselves within what you need for the system absolutely you know and and, and ultimately i i think that's what coaching is about we, we all recruit to a philosophy and we all have things that we certainly believe in and uh and there's a standard and and you're not going to deviate off that standard but i think schematically we change every year uh the last couple of years we had a dynamic guard in Jordan Jelly Walker, who scored over 20 points per game in both years, was a was a volume score, shot a bunch of threes, made a bunch of threes, and and we played uh, one of the fastest tempos in all of college basketball. I'm not sure this team is built that way. Certainly, we don't have a Jelly Walker, so we'll have to score in a variety of ways, and we'll have to schematically change the way in which we attack things on both ends of the floor. But I think ultimately that's the role of a coach. You recruit to a philosophy, and then you look at the strengths of your current roster and try to evolve a game plan that puts them in the best position possible to be successful. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like beyond obviously personnel, which dictates a lot of style of play. Uh, when are these moments where you make these decisions about stylistically how you can play with this group, and as you said, be adaptable and not just play the way you played last year? Well, it's one of the it's one of the things that I'm I'm, I'm kind of enviable of those old coaches, or maybe an awe would be a better word of a Gene Bartow, a Jim Valvano, a 
Uh, Bob Huggins, a guy that I, I work for, who's a mentor in the business, three guys that I've all had an opportunity to play for or work with that were all stylistically so different in both on and off the court, but all had one thing in common. And not only they won a bunch of games, but they built programs. So uh, for for me, those guys, if they started practice on October 15th, by October 23rd, they've got to figure things out pretty quickly. We had eight weeks in the summer. And we 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 have a standard and we play a certain way just to kind of see how different guys can thrive in different roles. And, and again, stylistically, what is the best way for us to attack the season? So once we get through the summer and we break down, obviously we put in some standard stuff and then we start evolving off that schematically again on both sides of the ball as we enter into the fall. That's great stuff. And uh, talked about the program mantra. We talked about number one, be relentless. How about number two, be consistent. Yeah, key to life is execution, is it not? Uh, I'm a big Shark Tank fan. You watch Shark Tank? Absolutely know what it is, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I love it in the fact that everybody's got a great idea. There's a lot of great ideas out there. But then who can execute? Those that execute are the ones that get the deal. And uh, I don't think sports is any different. We, we want to be consistent in day in and day out our work ethic. Uh, again, stacking work day in and day out, not looking for shortcuts, understanding that there's a standard by which – uh, you have to perform in order to be successful. Nick Saban, I don't know if you've heard of him either. You know, he's a pretty good football coach just up the road from him. Uh, and and he's always talked about, I, I, I show it to our team every year, uh, about this. Uh, everybody thinks they have all of these choices. And the reality is you really don't have that many choices if indeed you want to be successful. He calls it the illusion of choice. And I think everybody thinks, oh, I can do it this way. You really can't. Not if you want to be successful. There's a price that has to be paid. So for us, we want to be consistent day in and day out of putting in the work. Because, again, uh, when you're in a crisis situation, which is going to happen about 17 or 18 times in a college basketball game, you're not going to rise to the level. You're going to sink to the level. You're not going to rise to the level of the expectation or the moment of the excitement. You're going to sink to the level of your habits. So we try to instill good habits, be consistent day in and day out in our approach. I love that. And, uh, you know, the third part that, you know, brings it all together is obviously gratitude and be grateful. So talk to us about that. Yeah, we, uh, again, we, we want to ultimately be relentless in our pursuit of excellence on and off the court. We want to be consistent in our approach day in and day out, grinding, persevering. And then three, ultimately, we, we, we want to be grateful for the opportunity. Uh, you know, we. We, we, we have so many things that, that we're blessed to have, and, and I want our student-athletes to understand that although uh, this is not easy and, and no one has told you it's going to be easy, it's an incredible opportunity that you have uh, to, to take a step forward both personally, professionally, and to put yourself in a completely different position than where you were before, and we should be grateful for that opportunity. So in everything that, that we've been given and been blessed with, I, I want our guys to be grateful. Awesome stuff. And, uh, you know, I've had a chance. I know a lot of coaches in your league. And uh, one of the things that stood out to so many coaches in your league is how adaptable you are defensively in terms of, you know, you're trying to disrupt, you're trying to, you know, somewhat junk it up a little bit to be able to create any advantage possible. And I just love that philosophy of trying to figure things out and uh, not being married necessarily one type of thing. So talk to us a little bit about your adaptability, especially defensively. Well, you know, I, 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 my eye, everybody's eye is different. My eye is trained to watch the offensive side of the ball. It just is. I, I, I don't, you know, when, I, when I'm watching us, I, I kind of get myself trained to the offensive side of the ball. And for a while, as a young head coach, when I was at Ole Miss, I would, I, I don't want to say would feel guilty, but I was concerned that if that was correct or not, because 
I don't want the guys to, uh, you know, if, if I'm always talking offense or when we're playing five on five, I'm controlling the offense. I don't want that to send the message that defense isn't important to our guys. <laughs> you know, no, just because the head coach is talking about offense. No, no, defensively, that's the one thing that has to be the constant because it's the only thing that truly travels day in and day out. So, uh, so I, I didn't want to send the wrong message. But then um, I was with Billy Donovan, and he's a friend, and he was at Florida when I was at, at Ole Miss for the, a number of years. And and we had, we were having a conversation, and, and he said that he does the same thing. At the time, Larry Shiat was on his staff, and so Larry was kind of his defensive coordinator back before those things were in vogue. Now they're common, but back then they, they weren't necessarily in vogue. And so Billy always said, and I, and, and I, and it, it kind of reaffirmed in my mind uh, why my eye shifts towards the offense. He said, you know, the most devastating thing to a team, if you're in game and you can't get a quality shot, then you can preach and yell and scream and do whatever you want to do, but you're not going to have the same defensive effort if you're struggling to get quality shots. Now, sometimes they're going to go and sometimes they're not, but he felt like it was his job to make sure that his team had a quality offensive possession so that their energy level could be maintained. And so that's kind of my approach as well. Uh, and so I say that to say we spent a lot of time offensively trying to find angles and ways in which our guys can be successful. But then defensively, one of the things that, that disrupts me as the offensive coordinator is when a team is constantly changing its look, most especially with the shot clock the way that it is now, uh, it is disruptive, which is ultimately used that term at the beginning of this question, which is ultimately our goal. We want to be disruptive, and we do that just based on, again, we change these things based on our personnel as well, uh, but we want to be disruptive and changing looks so that the other team cannot catch a rhythm. Basketball, as you know, Chris, is the ultimate game of rhythm. Establish yours, disrupt theirs, and it's one of the ways that we attempt to disrupt theirs. I'm curious if some of those, and by the way, awesome answer. I love hearing that. And then I'm curious about some of these adaptions on defense. Do they come from just literally you're playing basketball within practice and then you decide to try some things to see if it works for your team and then to see how it might impact the game as you go forward? Yeah, and you, you would be shocked, Chris. So we, uh, you know, we're like everybody, man. We're we're heavy into the scouting. You know, we'll we'll put in 20 hours to give it to our team in 40 minutes over three days. You know, we can't bog them down, but – we spend a lot of time on it. And so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with this plan that we think, hey, this, this team could be susceptible to this pressure or this zone. And then we'll throw it out there and they can shred it and we'll get right out of it. Or we'll say, hey, man, we just need to slow this down. Maybe we've got foul trouble. Maybe maybe our team has got a, 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 a lineup that is not really what we need it to be based on our opponent. And so we'll we'll jump into the one three one or we'll jump into some full court pressure and it works so effectively we'll close the game in it. So you really have to be adaptable. We're gonna always throw everything at you. I don't think there's ever been a game that we didn't throw a little bit of everything. And this year's team will be different than last year's team, but we had, you know, two or three different looks that you, you know, you had to be prepared for. Uh, and we were going to do them all. And then we were going to see which one worked. And we have to be able to adapt just based on how the other team is responding. I love that. I've done that with many of the team. And one of the advantages that people don't think about enough is it actually makes your offense better, too, because your offense becomes a lot more adaptable because they play against this type of style defensively. That's right. You know, there's not a lot of things that that, that concern them as much. Um, you're, you're able to adapt because you're used to it day in and day out, as you said. Yeah. And it's not for everyone, as we know, and you've said that. And, uh, you know, part of that is because a lot of coaches like to know kind of the hard and fast, especially defensively, that this is what should happen and this is whose responsibility it is. 
So does that become a little bit of the muddy challenge of this to figure out whose responsibility it was for something? Yeah, no question. Uh, uh, you know, th- you're right. That's the reason most coaches don't do it. Number one, they're not comfortable with it. And if you're not comfortable with it, then you're not going to do it in the game. So why are you going to waste your time? People have asked me, how much time do you have to devote to it? What You have to devote serious time if you're going to really do this, because not only do you have to have confidence in it as the coach, but your players have to have confidence in it. They have to know that it is effective. And we chart it throughout the course of the game. And so we're constantly, because if if you got into to a huddle and there's two minutes to play and you ask the players in the huddle, hey, what do you want to what, what do you want to do defensively? They're all going to say man to man. And you want to say, hey, well, statistically, they're gashing us in this man. They've shot about 58 percent. But against this zone, you know, hey, they're two of their last seven. You know, so we have to make sure that they understand the effectiveness that we're doing, because kids immediately just want to say, OK, I'm going to guard my guy. Well, if you were guarding your guy a little better, we wouldn't be doing this. So. Uh, <laughs> Trust me here, I want to win too. So we're trying to slow this group down that we're having a hard time as it relates to man. So you've got to build, you've got to feel trust in it as a coach. And then you've also got to build trust in it through your players and confidence in it so that, you know, when the game is on the line, um, they they have confidence that they can come up and make the play. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to coach this way too and uh, to try and figure things out, as you said. And then you, you talked about the best version of themselves and that type of philosophy. That also connects to your offense a little bit, where your best players, you're going to put them into situations to be successful. So talk to us a little bit about that, some of the unique talents and unique players. How are some ways that you're trying to maximize them? Yeah, and and if if we had a few of my players on here, they would echo this. I think counters are so overrated. We try to – I try to – I want guys to play to their strength. You know, if, if, uh, you know, the the baseball – playing as we as we speak and uh you know a good pitcher's got what three pitches but he's going to go to his best pitch about 80 85 percent of the time the other two is just to kind of let you know it's there and to keep you off balance so you can't sit on the fastball so to speak i think the same in basketball i i think that you've got to stay to your strength you just need a move and a counter you need a move and a counter if you can have two moves and two counters you're an elite offensive player to me and then let's just play to that and that's my job to try to again Create an angle, create some space so that you can play to your strength. There has to be a counter to that, but ultimately I want guys playing to their strengths. You know, uh, in college basketball, you know, the evolution of Steph Curry and, you know, uh, the old James Harden, no disrespect, but the old James Harden who would dribble it 18 times and then go make a play at the, the old Rockets, James Harden. I think, you know, a lot of kids with that, the Steph Curry evolution, uh, started doing a lot of that dribbling in space, unnecessary counters, not getting into spots. And and I tried to explain to our guys, well, the NBA, they don't have illegal defense. You know, there is you know, there, there's a thing called illegal defense, so they can't sit and help. In, in our game, no, man, you got about two, three bounces in a half court to get to your spot because everybody's going to sprint to help. So for us, we try to eliminate unnecessary counters, and we try to play to your strength. Jelly Walker, for instance, he's a small guy, but he's really quick. And he's really good at, at getting it off quickly. He could get it off the catcher. He could get it off the dribble. He was really, really special at getting it off the dribble from deep and still being able to make it at a at a livable percentage at around 40%. I had a kid named Marshall Henderson back at, at Ole Miss in 2013. We win the SEC tournament. And we, we, we beat Wisconsin in the NCAA tournament to advance and had an incredible year, won 27 games most in the history of the program. And Marshall Henderson was really, really good at baseline running off these baseline runners, catching and shooting as his body was going against 
uh, away from the basket. Really, really good at that. I had a left-handed kid named Murphy Holloway, the all-time leading rebounder in the history of Ole Miss, who's now back working for Chris Beard on staff. I'm really proud of him. And he could go left and lefter. That was it. He had range to about three feet, and he was going to get to his left hand. And he did it continuously because we try to put him in a position to get downhill to his left hand. Those are just a few of the examples of, to your, to your point, we, we try to find what guys are good at and then play through their strength. Coach, I mean, move and a counter move. Like you just destroyed everyone on Instagram that's sharing the 10 different <laughs> moves and the 10 different ways to pick up the ball and all this other stuff. But it is that simple. And, and, I, and I know we get like kind of confused by all these different things, but Talk to us a little bit about how you help your players understand that because the noise around them is all oh, you need these, 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 but you're, you're right. You just need a moving account. Yeah. You just got to be really good. You got to find out what you're good at. And then we got to try to play through that. And, and, you know, it's one thing to talk about it and we do talk about it. We, we talk about it daily, but it's really just, you know, we try to instill it in drills. We're just trying to create habits. I said it earlier. At the end of the day, we're all a collection of habits. You're, you are Chris. I am. We're just a collection of our habits, and, and we want to have more good habits than bad habits. We're going to have some bad habits. We just want to have more good habits, and that's what we try to do in basketball as well. All of our drills are, are systematically set up to try to play to the strength, eliminate counters, hopefully creating what we refer to as muscle memory, i.e. a basketball habit that they will go to when the lights come on. Coach, it is a brief interruption from the podcast to talk about Hoopsalytics. With basketball season approaching quickly, do you have an affordable, powerful stats and analytics system in place yet? Rather than overspending on the same old antiquated stat system, you can get cutting-edge video link stats and deep analytics at around half the price you're paying now. Hoopsalytics analysts will break down games for you so you can instantly measure the effectiveness of your players, lineups, and player combinations. And you can add tracking for your unique plays, sets, and actions to see what's working and what needs to be improved. You can even measure shot quality and things like contested and uncontested shots to improve your offensive points per possession. Features like interactive shot charts, game timeline visualizations, assist maps, and more makes Hoopsalytics an invaluable resource for coaches of all levels. Discover how Hoopsalytics can help you save money and make better data-driven coaching decisions. Visit hoopsalytics.com slash ball today to learn more and start analyzing your games for free. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com slash ball. Love it. And, uh, you know, one of the things about uh, having this approach, this style of offense kind of built around your best players and their skill sets is to empower the other players and to make them feel like they belong. So talk to us about that because, again, you seem to do very well with players off the ball being engaged and being involved. Yeah, again, you know, ultimately, um, you know, I, I think we, we always talk about Larry Brown, you know, coining the phrase, play the right way. Just play the right way. We want to we want to put our guys in a position. We want to strike quickly. I'm not a big believer in the ball should go from A to B to C to get to D. If I wanted to get to D, let's get it to D. You know, we could we we try to create some off ball movement to occupy help, but again, because I understand if we're sitting here at the end of October and we're and we're running dry run offense against air, well, we could whip that thing around and Chris, you would sit there and be really impressed. Boy, they share that ball. Look at their spacing. But in a game, 
I want to get it to where I want to get it. So we eliminate the opportunity for future mistakes so that we can get a shot on the rim. I've always said that I believe that a, a bad shot is better than a turnover. We've always traditionally been good off our offensive glass, get it on the glass, fight for extra possessions. Uh, I think last year, actually, we were one of the best teams in all of college basketball in, in, in getting second chance opportunities. And we've also been, even though we're a volume team, uh, we typically don't turn it over that much. Is that and that's because we shoot it quick. You know, we want to we want to get it down. We want to get it turned. I'm a big believer in the ball changing sides of the floor, and then we want to attack. So not a ton of like uh, multiple masking actions to be able to get it to your player, right? Like just be direct and get it yeah. to the point. Try and leverage an advantage. Yeah, no question. And you know, and I and I and I tell our guys all the time. Back in the old days, again, when I played, there was a thing called the old five second count. So you couldn't sit there and just dribble forever. I mean, you were there was a hard count on you, so you would have to make extra passes possibly played in the, in the area of the 45-second clock. So there's a lot of passing going on. A lot. In, in our area, you don't have to do that. So, you know, uh, it, it's kind of ball screen heavy. We had a real ball screen heavy team last year. This year, maybe not as much as based off personnel, but we want to try to create angles to give our guys an opportunity to go and, and, and ultimately be best version of themselves. Talking about that uh, defense and uh, that that philosophy of kind of playing multiple different types of defenses, are you changing within possession sometimes, or is this mainly just from possession to possession? And then I guess the second part of that is it a little bit easier to teach nowadays because you're getting players that have played in multiple systems, like you refer to as you as a player. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think each uh, roster is built differently, and I'll tell you this: I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I think different teams have a temperament for being good or bad in a zone. I really believe that. I've had I've had I've had a team that I've had multiple teams that if you look at them physically you'd say boy they'd be a good zone team. They've got length, they react to the ball, they fly around, but they just didn't have a really good feel for it. Then I've had teams that that you would look and say uh, you know I, that team really is not built like they would be good in this 131 because you need some size on the wings, you got to keep the ball out of certain areas, but they had a, an adaptability to it. Last year's group I had a I had a pretty good defensive team. We weren't good in one on one situations. We had small guards. Jelly's five ten, one hundred and sixty five pounds. Eric Gaines is one hundred and sixty pounds, and we got big boys sometimes off the bounce because because physicality. We just lacked it in our two starting guards. So we zoned a lot. We pressed a lot, and we had a pretty smart and adapt zone team. Um, to your question, there are times that let's say for instance we we play this one three one, and when the ball goes to the corner. The reason people don't play a lot of one three one is because it's very difficult to rebound out of it. So we have different shifts. The ball can go to the corner. We can trap out of it. And then when they when they get it out of the corner, we will match up man to man. Or sometimes the ball will go to the corner and we'll we'll transition into a two three zone where the top guy, the one three one, just exchanges with the opposite wing to put him back on the back line. So now we've got our three biggest players on our back line and we're in a two three zone. And typically Teams are attacking that at the 15, 16, 17 second mark. Zone offense in 17 seconds, you know they're not going to get to options three and four. So, again, it, it limits their ability to attack you effectively. And then there's also last year's team almost went through it a little bit too much. I, I do give my quarterback the option to audible. I would prefer he didn't audible as much. But when you give them the option to audible, they're going to audible. Um, and so we would go one, three, one to two, three. And the ball entered the high post. If he turned to face, the five would engage him when we would be man to man. So many times uh, we would be in three different defenses over a 30 second period. 
which sometimes worked and then sometimes different. I do think it was confusing sometimes to our opponent, many times to us. So I'm not sure how advantageous it was. That's that's so true. And uh, those audibles, that's that's fascinating. So uh, how do you develop that for your players and understanding or particularly your leaders that get through audible? And then how do they uh, how do they uh, feel more comfortable to do that at the right time? Well, it's like anything, Chris, they have to earn the right. You know, they have to earn that by making the right decision time after time after time in practice. And then we will give them the latitude to to extend that into the games. And if we're successful with it, we'll continue to build off of it. Uh, if we don't feel like that, that we're doing it the right way, then we'll just put a hard and fast rule in and we're not going to do that. Uh, but we're still in that evolution. Last year's team was really good at it. It had a kid named K.J. Buffman, a transfer from Ole Miss, who was a very cerebral player. He's playing in Finland now, of all places. God bless. He, he, I, I follow him on uh, – uh, I don't follow anybody, but I, I go on his Instagram stories to make sure he's alive. And, and uh, he was like <laughs> – it was like October 14th, and it was already snowing over there. He's from Atlanta, Georgia, so <laughs> he's going to have to adapt really quickly. But he, he had a really good sense of understanding when to call the audible. So he was kind of like my Mike Singletary. I let him call the defense at times. That's brilliant. And uh, I've watched finished basketball, Coach. Of course, of course I have. Good basketball, right? Yeah, like I'm telling you, that some of those teams run some really impressive stuff, and it's, it's not exactly our style that we're talking about here. Like, they run multiple, multiple actions before the main action. But some of those actions, man, they just lose players. So what a basketball life it is to be able to go play overseas, Ed. Yeah, no question. I had an opportunity. I had two of my guys last year. I, uh, Quan Jackson, who was in the first transfer group with me, and Mike Ertle, also in the first transfer group. Both of them started in Finland last year, and both of them, Mike is now in France and evolving and uh, proud of those guys. They, you know, they all want to continue to play. and. They had great experiences there. I, I for one, I, I came out and uh, was released by the old Charlotte Hornets uh, back in the day. It was almost like this time of the year, you know, as you're getting used to getting ready for roster. And uh, I played in Greece. I played in Holland. I played in Puerto Rico. I played in uh, Spain. I've kind of bounced around myself. So a uh, long time ago, but I can uh, I can certainly understand the transition that these guys are going through. Talk to us about that. How, how did that type of experience of kind of – going to multiple countries, multiple places, multiple coaches. How did that influence your coaching? No, I wasn't thinking about that at the time. No. I was a typical, you know, 22, 23-year-old <laughs> dumbass. I was out there. I was just wanting to hoop, be a professional basketball player. And I, I couldn't even, you know, now, you know, you're going to spend money to go to Greece to see the Parthenon. I lived in a hotel literally and would have to pass the Parthenon every single day <laughs> to go to practice. And I'm not sure I even acknowledged it once. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, I, had, I, but I had, I had some great experiences over there. Uh, I really did. I, I played against some really good players and some really good leagues, and then some not so good leagues. You know, I was in, I was in Holland, and it was ice cold. And many of the gyms, you know, this was back in the day. I don't know if it's still like that. I hadn't been to Holland in a while, but you know, they smoking indoors was still very much a thing in Holland. So there would be so much c- uh, cigarette smoke in the gym, you could literally barely see half court. It was just guys were you know drinking beer at. At, uh, at halftime, taping their own ankles. It was quite an experience. Yeah, different world, different world, and uh, a lot of fun, but definitely colder than where you're living now, for sure. So, yeah, for sure. Coach, obviously, a big part of uh, your success and any coach's success in this modern era is obviously evaluating talent, particularly, obviously, we talked about the transfer portal. So, talk to us a little bit about that process. What do you actually look for when you're evaluating a player to be a part of your program? Well, it's gotten very difficult, even though even though technology 
you know, IE Synergy has made it easy to see. You can see the volume, but, you know, we don't have the time that we used to have. You know, the old days of when I was an assistant, even when I was starting in my head coaching journey in, in the mid-2000s, 05 with Cincinnati, 06 for a 12-year run at Ole Miss, you would get you would be out uh, and you could you could see guys in live action multiple times. You had multiple opportunities to, to uh, interact and get a feel for kind of who they were and whether or not it was going to fit for you from a cultural standpoint, from a mindset standpoint in your program. Now it's like speed dating. You know, it's like it, I, I really again, I'm I, I'm a transfer myself. I'm all for opportunities and I'm all for, you know, the, the premise of NIL. And, uh, you know, the way this thing has evolved into pay for play, I don't think it's good for anybody. I don't think it's good for the kid. I don't think it's good for the sport. I don't think it's good for for any of the parties uh, other than the immediate gratification of of trying to get some cash. But uh, the process has just gone so much more quickly that literally we've been pretty fortunate now. We have certainly missed on a lot of guys, but we've hit on a few key ones. And, and that's the key, right? You just got to hit on a few. And we've been able to hit on a few. And that was really based off of relationships more than evaluations. Guys that we have dealt with. I've been in this business 30 years. I've got a veteran staff. And guys, you know, kind of trust like like you like you know, for instance, okay, you hear Andy Kennedy, you think he's going to play this certain way. And, and most especially if you've got a guard that can go, then, hey, we let you go. And you, you know, if you can come here and get it done, we're going to put you in a position where you can showcase that. So you'd be amazed at the, the amount of people that reach out and say, hey, I got a guy for you. And that's how a lot of these things have evolved for us, simply because of the time and the rules have just changed so much. You really can't dig in and trust. You. You're just not going to see guys long enough to be able to say, yeah, you know, this is what we're looking for. So it comes back to relationships and doing right by people and by kids. So that people can trust you and reach out to say, hey, I may have somebody that you're interested in. Coach Kennedy, you've been doing this a long time. I'm curious, what is something or some things that have changed in your coaching over the years? You know, I was uh, I'm, I'm entering my 17th year as a head coach, 27th overall. And in 2018, when my tenure ended at Ole Miss, that was really uh it was eye-opening for me in a good way. Uh, I did the television thing for two years, and you got to remember, and you you can relate to this, Chris. Like NBA starts Tuesday night, I'll be all over, you know, and I'll be watching whoever's on. I think the Lakers are playing, you know, Denver, and I'll be watching that with a notepad and a pen in my hand, enjoying the game, but also trying to see, hey man, maybe we could do something similar to this based on our personnel. So, point being. When you're a coach, most especially as a head coach, everything that you're watching from football to baseball to basketball, NBA, you are watching it under the eye of a coach. You're dissecting it and trying to think, is there anything that I can take from this to help my current situation? So then I did the TV thing. So now I don't have a team. So now I can look at it somewhat uh, at a 30,000 foot view, so to speak. And I had incredible access. Another thing, Chris, that people don't realize is, Okay, when you're co- when you when you're part of a program, most especially as a head coach, other people aren't inviting you to practice. So the only practices that you see are the ones that you're involved in. Now I had a good relationship with with a number of the people with the Grizzlies, so I would go up there when they're in camp. But come on, man, that's completely different <laughs> than what I was doing. So when I was doing the TV, and most especially in the SEC area, I had such a relationship with all the guys in the league that I would come in and they would say, "Hey." 
man, come into our film sessions. I want you to do, what do you think about this? I was almost like their, their psychologist a little bit, somebody to vent to that they could trust. But also it opened up you know, a lot of different ways to do a lot of different things, some of which I took with me, some of which and just basically affirmed some of the things I'd been doing in the past. So it was really, really good for me. So when I, I then, you know, get the opportunity to, to, to come back to my alma mater. It was the COVID year, which was really bizarre for all of us, as you remember. Uh, but it, it, it enabled me to kind of change the way in which I, I kind of go about it. I'm still uh, very intense. I still uh, want to hold guys to a standard, you know, accountability. Uh, Kelvin Sampson, I think I just saw, said at media day, there's three people that can't ever have a bad day in practice, the head coach, your point guard, and your best player. And I agree with that completely. The head coach can't have a bad day. They're going to they're gonna feed off your energy, and if you allow them to slack or to cut corners, guess what they're going to do? They're going to slack and they're going to cut corners. So you really got to be on it from that standpoint. But I do think I'm fair, and I do think, you know, um, um, that guys can trust that I'm telling them the truth. So, so much fun. I can imagine that those television years in a way were a blessing to just be able to be a part of the game like that. And uh, obviously your love of game shines through, but also your love of coaching and uh, to be able to dive deep. Was there anything in particular or some things in particular that stood out? You don't have to name specific programs, but some kind of learnings that stood out from being able to kind of observe those practices and those uh, experiences. Yeah, the most amazing thing, Chris, and you know this, but when you get to see it on a day in and day out, it's really eye-opening. It the polar opposite approaches different people take. And again, I won't name names, but these are all successful, you know, Hall of Fame level or going to be Hall of Fame guys. And one guy does it one way, and another guy is 180 degrees different. One guy is physical, five on five, going at it, accountable, energy high. One guy is walkthroughs and clapping, and 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 yet. You find a way. It's just based on, you know, the dynamics of your team. Um, so the, the, the polar opposite in approaches was was very, very eye opening. And it just kind of shows that at the end of the day, my advice for all young coaches is, hey, man, trust your gut. I'm an instincts guy, man. Trust your gut. Be true to yourself, because if you're not true to yourself, you're, if you're not believing in what you're doing, you're going to vary off of it. When things get hard, you're going to pivot. And if you pivot too much when times are tough. Kids are going to see right through it. You're going to lose credibility. If you lose credibility, you're done. Absolutely. Great advice. And uh, talk to us a little bit about this. Uh, obviously, coming back a little bit to your Be Relentless philosophy, but this this idea of developing an edge in your players, because, again, that way, and you referenced it, is different than it might have been 10 years ago in terms of how we would approach that. So talk to us a little bit about how the modern Andy Kennedy coaches that and tries to develop that edge in players. Well, again, I think it ultimately comes back to accountability, letting them understand that, OK, no, you're going to do it right. And if you don't do it right, you're going to do it again. And this is the standard. This isn't good enough. And, and accountability, accountability becomes ingrained in them. Again, goes back to my idea of habits. We're all creatures of habit. And and I don't care how prepared you are, your, your players are going to divert back to their habits. And so we just are trying to create the, this right habit regimen uh, within our team. Uh, so that then they can build confidence in doing it this way. You want your teams to be humble in practice, but arrogant in games. Uh, I read this that I think I forget the name of the move of the book, but uh, and it was 100 percent right. You, you want your guys to be humble in practice, be able to take coaching, be able to understand, you know, to, 
to stay in the moment. Okay, he's telling me this because uh, I need to correct this. I've got a bad habit. I've got to change this. But then going into the games, you don't want them to be confident. You want them to be arrogant because there's going to be so many extenuating circumstances that are going to try to tear you down, tear you down, tear you down. So that arrogance needs to be on game day. And there's a difference. There's a balance. Humble in preparation, um, arrogance in performance. I love that. That's a, such a simple way of putting it. And uh, that's what we want to do for our team. It's obviously in practice, you're going to struggle a little bit more because we're creating these conditions for you to struggle. And then in the game, we want you to be ultra confident. And that blend is difficult, isn't it, to be able to do. So maybe talk to us a little bit about some of the ways that you get your players to be confident for the games. Well, again, it's just it goes back to repetition and, and doing the things that we do day in and day out. So we have earned the right to be successful. Kids, kids are something now. I mean, they can they can put off this this false hubris or bravado, but you can tell who's really inwardly confident. But but what is confidence? Confidence is is uh, is performance. You know, it, that's all it is. You know, it, it confidence is somebody that has done it time and time again, and they are confident because they have been able to perform at a consistent level. So what you do as a coach, you try to put them in a position where they can develop this confidence. Uh, and it's true. It's inward because they know they put the work in. They've earned the right to be successful. They put they, they've stacked the work. They've gotten the reps and they have this uh, performance background of success that they can reflect upon. Well, I mean, and you've stacked the work over all these years and you've done it at different places. Um, talk to us a little bit about that, that concept of being able to be adaptable and coach at different places. I mean, now at your alma mater, you're a little more familiar, but it's different than when you were there, I'm sure. But talk to us a little bit about your adaptability as a coach from place to place. Well, ultimately, you've got to be true to yourself, as we talked about earlier, but you've got to figure out, okay, um, you know, I, I, for a long time, you know, I was with Bob Huggins for five years. And for a long time, you know, it was the, the when I got into coaching, it was different. You know, the kids were different. And, you know, when I was a player, if a coach told me I couldn't do something, my immediate response was, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you I can do it. Now the response is different sometimes, quite frankly. If, you, if you're if you on a kid too much and, and you say, hey, man, you can't do this, you can't do that. Many times I can see in their face, they're like, hey, mate, he might be right. You know, they, and so they pivot away from where you want them to go. So for us, every job is different. No two jobs are created equal. You know, my situation at Ole Miss in, in Oxford, Mississippi, in the SEC was so much different at that time than the situation that I'm in now. Uh, you've got to figure out the, 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 the lay of the land in your current situation and recruit to it. I think every job has a different dynamic as it relates to who you're attracted to. And ultimately, let's don't get this twisted. This is about players, you know, and you've got to get good players. And then you've got to put them in the best position possible to be successful. And they've got to believe. They've got to believe in in you and in what you're doing for them. And if you do that, you've got to ultimately a chance for our goal, which is, let's say it together, Chris, best version of self. That's that's the goal. And ultimately, you've got an opportunity to do that if you can if uh, if you can check all those boxes. Well, you know, and I love that. I mean, I love the consistent simplicity of your messaging, obviously, in terms of your mantras and then how that connects to obviously becoming the best version of yourself. Talk to us a little bit about dealing with some of those players that you have to, let's say, hold more accountable in terms of that. What are some ways that you can hold players more accountable nowadays? I think the biggest thing that I've learned is giving them more responsibility. Uh, you know, I, we, we, we give our guys a, a lot of small choices and we're two weeks away from the season. So we're, we're kind of building this thing, but we start giving them small choices. Okay. 
What do you want to eat? When you want to eat? You know, what color uniform? This, that, the third. What do you What do you think about this or that? So that they take on more ownership. Ultimately, as a coach, you, you just want to figure out a way in which your players will take more ownership. When you have nine new players, like our current situation, and everybody's just trying to figure out what's going on. You know, right now I still got guys are trying to figure out how do I not get a parking ticket every day on campus? You know, where do I where do I wash my clothes? You know, they just just the basic necessities. So we're we're trying to get them to understand that the team is really is theirs and it's going to be um, good or bad depending upon their level of ownership and I, and as I've tried to get now I've got four returning players two guys that were had started some or actually only really one guy that started the majority of the games in Eric Gaines and another kid in Javion Davis that started a few games played a backup role in that four or five slot I need their roles to expand. And then I had two kids that were that were role players off the bench in the backcourt. Well, you can't have the same mentality of just kind of going along and being a wallflower. Now you your voice needs to become louder. Uh, and kids sometimes are resistant to that uh, because in order to hold other people accountable, you've got to be willing to be held accountable yourself. So that is the battle that, that goes on, especially as you have guys that are evolving in roles. And that's something that uh, we're currently undergoing. That's a really impressive approach, Coach. And I, I, I want to highlight that for everyone. Like in terms of some of those players that may be challenging initially, instead of consequences, instead of like being demeaning, you know, even being demanding, first thing is to try and give them responsibilities where they feel more a part of it. They feel more belonging within your program. And uh, that's such a great approach to it. And and why not start that way, right? Well, ultimately, you know, it, you guys are going to you're going to get pushback. And, you know, it, again, when you're dealing with 18, 19, 20, now, now 22, 23, 24, sometimes with these COVID seniors and such, you know, the, 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 the age of your roster has certainly grown since the days that I played. But you're still dealing with guys that, uh, you know, when things go bad, it's easy and it's human nature to say, oh, it's not me. You know, it can't be my fault. Right. Uh, but if you say, hey, man, this is the way you guys want to do it. You said you wanted to. I have found that they do take on more personal ownership because they feel uh, more part of the solution. I love it, Coach. I mean, so many great insights throughout this podcast. And uh, maybe just uh, give us some insights uh, in terms of those young coaches approaching the profession nowadays. The profession is certainly different than when you started. So maybe offer some advice to the young coaches that are starting off in the profession. Yeah, I would I would just say, again, there's no A to B to get to C. I think um, uh, if I told you my journey, it would be so different than what you would have imagined. Uh, you know, and, and I get it, man. Every assistant coach wants to be a head coach. So did I. Uh, I get it. And I want to try to help those guys evolve. But what I found uh, is, is, again, pretty simple and pretty basic, man. Be where your feet are. Do the best job that you can. Be totally vested. Don't be worried about you know, self-promotion, do your job. Because if you win games, people are going to look at your situation from a player standpoint, from an assistant coach standpoint, say, hey, what are they doing? Because they're doing something right. And whether it be a player or an assistant coach, hey, I, I, want, I want some of that in my program. And I have found really the best way in order to ascend in this business. Uh, wonderful advice. And coach, I mean, I, I, I saw you on TV I mean, I've, I've listened to you before on different plots or different types of interviews. You absolutely, absolutely do a great job giving back to the game in so many ways. And I cannot thank you enough for sharing the game with us. Well, Chris, I appreciate you. Much respect. I appreciate everything you're doing for college basketball. 
Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.